Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, here we go. Oh. Here we go. Okay. Uh, you don't have to come from a great big town not to clean out a stable in an evening gown. You don't have to mix with the Vanderbilts not to take off your panties when you're wearing kilts. <laughs> That comes natural. Isn't that good? There was definitely an envelope at that time that could be pushed a little bit, but not to take off your panties. Panties when you're wearing when you're wearing kilts, don't do it. I love it. Oh my god, that was the one I was looking for. That's fantastic. I love that one. One hundred percent worth it. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are covering the classic musical Annie Get Your Gun with someone who might just be the closest thing to having Merman herself on the show. She's got the voice. She's got the knowledge. And best of all, she might not tell you to go f*** yourself as much as Ethel did. Everyone, please welcome Clea Blackhurst. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I'm so happy to be here. This is exciting. This is one. This is my era right here. We can talk it through. We'll be surprised at how much knowledge is tucked away in there that I just (laughs) was waiting to get out, you know, so hit me, hit me. Oh, hey, well, okay. So let's start right off the bat. And when did you realize you had this connection with Broadway legend Ethel Merman? Because it does feel like a connection to me. It is. I, I, uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in Salt Lake City, which is, what, what? Uh, what, what? and my mom was, she passed away in, uh, 2018. Oh, and up until good. that point, you know, just a couple years before that, she was a, a community theater actress in Salt Lake and yes. she never wanted to be a pro. She just did not like auditions, like <laughs> not like them. Like she didn't like she just like didn't want to do them i mean that took her out of the business right away but um but she had done lots of stuff and one of the famous things is she was pregnant with me when she played ado annie what so so there's this little pregnant girl singing i can't say no and that's like a famous family Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's good family lore and um uh so she had a lot of show albums, which I find, you know, kids who love musical theater, a lot of time, you know, those of us grown up will say, oh, my parents had this collection. So my mom's, my mom's, uh, my three favorite albums were Half a Sixpence with Tommy Steele, mm-hmm. I Do, I Do with Robert Preston Aww. and Mary Martin, 
and Annie Get Your Gun, the original oh. 1946 with like Ethel with the with the squirrel rifle and her moccasins and like bucks, buckskin dress. What? I and, had no idea. Full body chills. Yeah. So th- so that's kind of my that's the real um sound print around what I love about all of this. Whatever those three things have in common, you could kind of come down to like I don't sing things in a in a certain key. I sing things in a certain tempo. You know, it's like that's my that's my setting. Like B flat. I don't know, but could we take it about here? So um so anyway, that's that. It's it's not until uh, junior high school maybe when I uh, got my hands on Gypsy mm. that I sort of put. The, the, the dots together between Annie Oakley and Rose. It's like, oh, the voice is this really specific thing. Yes. But in terms of Annie Get Your Gun and that album in my house growing up, my mom sounds like that in real life when she was singing. Really? And she sang with a, a, oh yeah, that same kind of belt, that same kind of thing. So she sounds like that when I go to her, when I go to rehearsals with her as a little kid or, right. or her singing group gigs, you know, as I was growing up. And then Ethel Merman sounds like that on the record. That's just what a, a woman's voice sounds like to me. Mm. So the sopranos come in much later because if the song was kind of slow on a record, I just pick the needle up and go to the next one that was next, fast. Next, please. Mm, yeah. next, please. <laughs> yeah, I've grown to appreciate all of those uh, tempos and actresses that have a different feeling, but I was not going to be one. I was not going to join their ranks myself, right. you know. So um, so that's that's kind of where that comes from. I mean, it's just an honest, like, early expo- exposure and a very clear attraction to a specific kind of voice. Uh, you, I'm, I know I've told this on the podcast before, but uh, I was a big fan of high belters, especially, you know, mm-hmm. the, the high belting female voice. And, and I got to a place in college where I looked at my iTunes library and I was just ashamed. <laughs> Just deeply, deeply ashamed of what I had collected, and I realized that I needed to get some more straight-sounding music in my in my library. So I picked out uh, Cheryl Crow and oh, Seal. There you go. There you go. That yeah. throws them off. Yeah. One hundred percent. Big bushes to hide behind. I think it's good. Yeah, it's good. That not throw them off. Throw them off. Oh, Adorable. Okay, so Ethel Merman, born Ethel Agnes Zimmerman, right? Uh, as a young adult, yep. she was a secretary and then would sing in nightclubs in at at night. That's right. She was an excellent. She was an excellent, not just a secretary. She she really excelled at the Pittman uh, method of shorthand and oh. was an incredibly fast typer. And she kept wow. up her typing all through her life. And so she was like a really, really, she had her skills ready. Yes. Um, her, her boss was this, uh, Caleb Bragg was his name. And he, he they ran a, va- a va- vacuum booster brake company <laughs> in Long Island where she lived. So she <laughs> could course. wake up late. Of course it was Long over, Island, right? Of course, where she lives. So she gets herself home at night. She still, she lives with her parents all the way through her early successes. Oh, wow. Because uh, she's just an only child and they love her and everybody's, you know, fine over there. And uh, and so she would wake, if she, if she came in late, he so, sort of had late hours himself. He wasn't always p- totally punctual. Right. So if, if he wasn't there, she would take a quick nap in the ladies' room and the girls would look out for her and say, oh. he's here, he's here. And she'd get up and, you know, Fix brush yourself. off her dress. Uh-huh. So yes. So so yes, the skills, the secretarial skills are definitely part of it, including in her early 
success is also taking notes in shorthand with changes that are happening in the script and stuff. And then she would go home, type them up and bring them back to rehearsal. So that's not an an insignificant fact in like how she was just practical. Right. And disciplined. Very disciplined. Yeah. Very disciplined and very, you know, like what you saw is what you got. The Zimmerman happens. I'm sure you have this in your research. She you know, it's like the name is so long. Yeah, it's not going to fit on the marquee, folks. Not going to fit up there. So she takes off the Zim, and it has two N's, so she takes off the final N mm. and puts it up there, you know, in respect to her father. It's like she didn't want to totally destroy the name, although it's pretty destroyed. But anyway, that's, but it's, it's in not there, a different... Right? Yeah, it's in and there. And I mean, yeah, I did read square. that she had had the chance to use her mother's maiden names, right. but, but she right. didn't. She wanted to pay respect to her yeah. father. And it's, you know, it's not as bad as uh, Judy Garland, right? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Little Francis, the right. gum. It was a good one to get rid of gum. gum. You can't even take off the final M and come up with anything good. It's no, we gum. don't. We don't want to think of gum in the bottom of a urinal when we think of Dorothy of Oz. <laughs> No, we don't. Uh (laughs) All right. So Ethel, I mean, this voice, right? As soon as people hear this voice, as soon as composers start hearing this voice, they want to write music for her. But my question is, I guess, how much of her success was the fact that at this time there was an amplification? Well, you've landed on exactly, you've landed on it. Hmm. Prior to Merman, probably the most successful stage persona woman is uh, Marilyn Miller, hmm. who is a soprano. And she's, um, you know, sort of this lilting, wonderful, strong, you know, I mean, she was beloved, right? Right. Now, shows were very string heavy. They'd have lots of hmm. violins and lots of cellos and a kind of bill from there. The brass section and all of that was not as, um, you know, they wouldn't, they weren't as yeah. big because you couldn't, no, you, you couldn't can't compete, compete with, with them. Yeah, exactly. So, so you have Ethel Merman come in, and that first night of Girl Crazy, when she sings I Got Rhythm, and she becomes an overnight sensation, the band is made up of Red Nichols Orchestra, which is Red Nichols on trumpet, uh, Gene Krupa on drums, Jimmy Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, who, who else was in there? Uh, there's a, there's there's a couple more really famous famous people, mm-hmm. and she was able to compete with them. So this was mm-hmm. sound wise. So you get this really like brassy sound, and you get her coming out over it, and it just wasn't something that uh, voices just didn't do that. Um, so she was like hitting the back. I've stood on that stage many times. It's now the Neil Simon. It's the it was oh, the Alvin. In that. that, I'm sure the deck has been replaced hundreds of times since 1930 but the airspace is the airspace you know right. and so you can feel where the back of the house is and she could get there with no problem many years ago i got the original i got rhythm charts from the gershwin uh, estate and asked if i could use them on a concert and they let me get them oh, great. there's only one way to sing those charts and it's loud Louder and a little bit louder. There is no <laughs> chance for any nuance. You, there, it's not possible because there's a ba 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 ba, and your voice is like on that C, holding the note. Right. Blah, blah, blah. So I think she develops a certain kind of voice based on what you become successful doing. This is what audiences wanted from her, and this is what she was going to give them. And she was incredibly gifted at it. She really was. And then mm. the imitations start coming along after that but she's kind of the first voice really to like set that as a star you right. know 
She's the first one to come. And as a stage presence, too, right? Like, her voice yeah. wasn't the only thing reaching the back of the house. She had this larger-than-life persona that, that everybody yeah. could enjoy in that theater. Yep. The guy, I'm, you can see it. Thank goodness she made enough movies that in the early in the 30s that we can see she wasn't successful and embraced by Hollywood. They didn't know mm-hmm. what to do with her exactly. But when you watch these movies, uh, she does two with Eddie Cantor, one with the Ritz brothers that's terrible. I mean, they're not great movies. <laughs> but watching them is fantastic because you can see what it was that was so special. One of the things mm-hmm. in particular, you'll read all the time, uh, places that her eyes would flash. Uh, uh-huh. And so I started noticing in the films, she does this thing where she'll like, she'll look, she'll look like right to left and back to right really fast. And I thought, uh-huh. I'm sure in a Broadway house in the back, that reads, it's that flash of white, you know, of her uh, eyes. And I thought, right. you can see it in the movies, like tempered a little bit, but you're like, oh, that's what that would be. You would be mm-hmm. getting that. And the first, one of the, First people that I've read about, and I know this happened because I was friends with Paula Lawrence, uh, who was a contemporary of Mermaid, starred in something for the boys with her. And oh, okay. They would bead their eyelashes, right? So you do all this mascara as much as you can, as much as you can, and then heat wax and take a safety pin and bead the end of your eyelashes so that they had more. This is oh, not false eyelashes gosh. going on. This right. is like a whole other yeah, the, time. Wax with wax a bead. attached. Look, my so, bedroom eyes would just close. <laughs> like there's no way they'd even be open with I all know. that stuff on the lid. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy when you think of those things, but um, – but we were just in a – it was a different time. That's that's what I think people forget, you know, right. like, oh, Merman – okay, so, well, if Merman went to an audition today at Ripley Greer in the fluorescent light, she would not be given the time of day. But this is the biggest Broadway star we will ever know because Broadway has branched out so much. You can't have 15 hit shows. Right. Because a hit, a hit wouldn't be counted – you just wouldn't have them anymore. But she had them because it was a different – time what what a hit was was something that ran for more than six months Mm. because shows didn't run for a year and they all closed down in the summer so everything got a restart because of air conditioning really everything got i mean of course but i didn't even think about the 30s you'll see oh this this show played 300 performances Mm -hmm. or 100 performances and they get racked up as a hit because they'll go well we closed for the summer exactly that's why there were all these stars on the straw hat circuit right they could go to a gunquit maine and do sure. a show or the kate playhouse and do a show because they're all leaving the city yeah for nobody wants summer. to be in there nobody they wants can, to be in and that nobody heat. would go to the theater because it was like excruciatingly hot exactly so it was just a different time a different world that we forget to sort of take into account yeah what the context the, is just so the important. context of what was different exactly yeah. Now, I remember talking to you and you said something super interesting in like the same way that we play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Ethel Merman is connected to everybody in musical theater. Yes. 20th century musical theater, uh, especially from a not not even joking standpoint, but from a historic standpoint, you can get to anybody in musical theater in America, in the 20th century, through Ethel Merman. Wow. She, I'm uh, older than you are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time I'm becoming, she's still on TV shows as a guest star, on you know, on Love Boat and Fantasy sure. Island and stuff when I'm coming up. So we're seeing her. In fact, there's a fabulous clip of her 
on The Muppet Show, where <gasps> Fozzie Bear, the agent, turns him down and he's really sad and depressed. And she she sings to him, now listen, there's no business. She sings oh. really quietly, really oh. softly, trying to cheer Fozzie Bear up. And That's I'm like, adorable. okay, here's this moment where she was still part of the popular culture, mm-hmm. right? And But even by that point, when I'm seeing her at the end of her life on television doing these things, she's a different being. You know, she's this like, ah, yeah, she's kind like of this a, like... Like a caricature uh, of herself. That's right. And you forget, you have to go back into the 40s and 30s and 50s even. When you realize Cole Porter wrote five scores mm. for Ethel Merman. Five. Now... Everybody thinks of him as the, you know, the bon vivant, rich Yale man. Yeah, all this sophisticated. He loved writing for her. Five shows. That is not insignificant. That's like, okay, all of the composers, uh, Irving Berlin had a famous quote about, she can make a good lyric great. Wow. And you better write her a great lyric because everybody's going to hear it all the time. <laughs> right. And you're always going to be able to hear it. Absolutely. So. That's what you, I think that's a very exciting thing to have George Gershwin, Ira Gershwin, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, Julie Stein, Ugh. all these these incredible talents. Now, have you ever done Annie Get Your Gun? I've done Annie Get Your Gun. Interestingly to me, I have not played Annie. What? Uh, I, 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 for a number of years, did a concert version of it where there was sort of the backstory was being told and then the songs were being done with symphonies, okay, right? right? So I played it in that context. Mm-hmm. And then in 2011, I got this bizarre offer to stand by for Deborah Voigt, who is a major Wagnerian soprano, right? And okay. this was the Glimmer, the Glimmerglass Opera Festival, uh, which takes place in Cooperstown, New York, every year and Francesca Zambello who's a big director right of course she was taking over as artistic director of the festival and she decided one of the opera slots every year was going to go to a uh, a, a, a a great musical great that could be done with opera aesthetics which is no amplification and full orchestras so kind of cool right absolutely yeah Um, and I played Dolly Tate in that and was standing by for Debbie so there you have Annie Oakley being done by a Wagnerian soprano. Like a Wagnerian soprano. soprano. Wow. So I'd be, I'd be like in the wings going like, my life is so weird and I love <laughs> it. because. So I got to do it, um, but as Dolly. I was supposed to have four performances that summer. I didn't get any performances because <gasps> Debbie was having so much fun. She didn't take the, any of the she didn't Well, take I mean, the, good for her, dates. but I'm so mm-hmm. sorry. That's and terrible for you. I know. In a way, I know. I, I was sorry for me, too. But I got to do put-in rehearsals, and okay. I got to do um, a final dress thing. She was away doing a concert, in the still in the rehearsal room. I got to, like, make my point nice. playing the role. Because I thought a lot of the young opera singers that were um, a apprentices that year or interns uh there were a couple different programs so there were interns and apprentices uh i didn't feel like they were giving the respect mm. you know compared to an opera i felt like they were just treating this like it was like child's play yeah, and like a nursery rhyme, like something. stupid and i'm like mm-hmm. no it's stupid if you don't fill it and you don't respect it as like the piece of art that it is right and so i you know, I did this run through and I was very proud of like the response people were having to it because it's like, uh uh-uh, uh, not on my watch. You're, yo, you're going to talk to Annie right now. Yes. And she's going to talk in your face. Here we go. You know? <laughs> I so love that. Was, that. 
yeah, that was really fun. I had a I had a great time doing that. So I have done it, but not in quite the way you would expect. Yeah, definitely not. Or that in the I way. would expect. No, definitely not <laughs> yes. in the way that we'd expect. Now, have you ever done a production of it? Okay, so yes, this show has is interesting for me. <laughs> so I remember seeing a national tour of it with Rita McKenzie back in the day when I was okay. little. And then I got to see the revival, the 1999 revival, with Bernadette Peters. And I was so excited to see her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's like one of my idols. So it it, it was great. But it was also the first Broadway musical I ever saw that I wasn't totally blown away by. You mean that one? That one with Bernadette? Yes, that one with Bernadette. It was the one I I saw and I was like, huh, I guess I'm not going to be completely blown away by every musical I ever see on a Broadway stage. Uh, Cut to me then doing two consecutive productions of it back to back with different teams, different creative teams, and absolutely loving it. Uh So, I mean, it's an interesting journey for me. Now, which scripts? Uh, uh, The 99 revival. Okay. That revival. Yeah. Because then we have three. We have the original 46. We have the... 1966 60, revival, exactly. Where which basically takes out uh, Winnie and I mean, what's the daughter's name? Yeah, Winnie and, and yeah, Winnie Tommy. and Tom, Tom mm-hmm. and Tommy, right? And takes out that storyline completely. Yeah, it's gone. And adds uh, "Old Fashioned Wedding," one of the great Irving Berlin double songs, right? Which I mean, come on. So uh, there's been some uh, futzing around, and and the and your revival that you're talking about. Also moves things around quite a bit. I mean, it opens with a slowed down. There's, yeah, there's, there's, no, no, there's no business. Yeah, with Tom Wopat. <laughs> exactly. Back to the I audience mean, turning fu- face fuck. Tom Wopat. So is there anything better? It, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to like, you can't just globally speak to this piece because it's like, well, maybe you really miss Winnie and Tommy and you're very upset at the 1966 <laughs> or maybe you or maybe you're over it by the time we get to Bernadette Peters yeah. or, you know, and, whatever. And I mean, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but the movie version. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And With I Betty love Hutton. Betty Hutton in that movie. I mean, she Betty Hutton is in a lot of things. Bonkers, she right? is so off her nut that sometimes it's too much, you know, but I actually think she's just the right amount in 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 the movie. I like her a lot. Well, in look, it. She is. So brave on film, like truly, no one else would ever, and maybe no, will never give that no, kind of performance adorable. ever again. I think it's a really good capture for her. Now, the film was originally supposed to star Judy Garland, but then producers fired her, right. and so they brought on Betty Hutton, and apparently, they did not treat her well at all. And so, the fact that she was able to give that kind of a performance with so much joy and so much, you know, love is a real testament to her because truly, everybody treated her terribly. Yeah, just turning it on for us all these generations later to say yes. what a great job she did, exactly, and not bring not bringing the day in to go like everybody here hates me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do see, I mean, they have what two two or three big numbers filmed of Garland doing it, right? And she does look, she does look, you know, spent mm. and a little bit in trouble. Mm, that's the right way of saying it. For and sure. so, you know, it's like, well, there again is another one that you're like, yes, we all would have loved to have seen that film, but it wasn't able to be made. You you flash forward a little bit. And when they were trying to replace Angela Lansbury and MAME on Broadway, Judy Garland really wanted to do it, was desperate to do it. They wanted her to do it. Ugh. But ultimately, 
the producers wouldn't do it because just, just of risky. her history. But they're yeah. like, we cannot count on this eight times a week. It's not going to happen. And you know, in your heart of hearts, and apparently it was just it destroyed Judy Garland, whatever. In your heart of hearts, you know they were right. Yeah, I mean, you know, as much it just as I the- want to say. Forget the original cast of Dreamgirls. Yes. The show that I want to go back in time and see is Judy Garland and Mame. Yes. I, they made the right call. They made the right call. It wouldn't have been able to sustain itself. So there, these things happen on the, the different the different planes of existence that they happen on. Absolutely. So going back to the genesis of Annie Get Your Gun, we actually get to talk about a woman. Hooray! It's so rare on this podcast yes. that, the, that the beginning of a musical's genesis is started by a woman. And in this case, the woman is Dorothy Fields. That's right. Now, by 1945, Dorothy had already become a super famous lyricist. She had won an Oscar for writing uh, The Way You Look Tonight. Yeah. And she had also written many other famous songs. She was also really good friends with Ethel Merman, right? Yep. And thought that creating a musical for her about famous sharpshooter Annie Oakley would be a great idea. So she ends up pitching the idea to Rodgers and Hammerstein. Correct. Not to write it, but to produce it. They were enjoying this, you know, monumental success because of Oklahoma and were looking to start being producers, not That's just right. writers. And they agreed with her and signed her on to write the lyrics with Jerome Kern writing the music. One problem, Jerome Kern dies. He passes away. So they turn to Irving Berlin. That's right. And now we get to talk about Irving Berlin, one of the most famous songwriters we have in all of American culture. Uh, and I also, this is like the first Irving Berlin show we've covered. Please forgive me, <laughs> gods of musical theater. Uh, but he was born Israel Baleen. Ba- Baleen. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you. Israel Baleen in Russia and moved to the U.S. at age five. And the first time he changed the world as a composer was back in 1911 when he wrote Alexander's Ragtime Band and it became just a worldwide smash and created a huge dance craze. From then on, he just wrote hit after hit and he becomes synonymous with Tin Pan Alley if you've ever heard of that he also writes a lot of songs for the war efforts I Hate to Get Up in the Morning God Bless America and uh, he also wrote quite a few musicals The Coconuts with the Marx Brothers very early on Louisiana Purchase which has just an adorable score As Thousands Cheer which uh, is a review and has some really profound moments Supper Time Supper Time I mean my gosh game changer Mm -hmm. huge But post-Oklahoma, he was pretty intimidated by what a musical theater score now needed Mm -hmm. to do for characters and plots. So Rodgers and Hammerstein really had to convince him to do it. What's so crazy, though, is he more than stepped up to this challenge. Uh, This score is completely packed with showstoppers. Oh, my gosh. He wrote, I think it was in uh, uh, 18 days, he wrote 11 songs Oh my or, gosh. <laughs> or eleven days, he wrote eighteen songs. It, I, I'm 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 inverting those numbers, but either way, it's impressive. And every Very song impressive. in this every song in this show is is a hit. I mean, every yes. you know it. You, you know everything I can do. You can do. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, sun in the morning, doing what comes naturally. I mean, we all love and know these songs and want to listen to them and. They're they're just they're priceless, really. And you, um, a couple little things I want to go back and fill oh, please. fill in the the um, details around it. Yes, go, Clea, go. Uh, Dorothy Fields had moved to, had gone to Hollywood, and she and Jerome Kern were this 
killer uh, songwriting team, winning Duo. that Oscar, like you mentioned, for The Way You Look Tonight. Right. And so when she has this idea, she takes the, just the idea to Rodgers and Hammerstein, um, Ethel Merman as Annie Oakley, and they think it's a great idea, and she says, I'll try to get Jerome Kern. I mean, Jerome mm. Kern is like older than he was. He was significantly older than she was. And he's in Los Angeles living life large. I mean, it's like, you know, we all know the difference between the two places. And if you just want to like swim and play golf, we know which one is the better choice for you. <laughs> so he, he was saying, no time, you know, that's like, no, it's not my thing. And she, she basically like exerts her influence to say, come on, we'll have a lot of fun, whatever. So he yeah. says, okay, he came to New York to start and right within the first couple of days before they even get started he has a major stroke on the street oh um, my gosh thank you new york city and he had he had his ascap pin on you know the american society of composers, of composers. authors and publishers mm-hmm. and so he has no identification on him but they take him to the hospital and they have this ascap pin so they call ascap they everybody puts two and two together it's Jerome Kern. i think he he lived for about 8 or 9 days and then he passed away so wow. so that's a little more yeah Con- time is of the essence dramatic then you got all the facts right, but it's like kind of, oh. No, there's right? a sense of urgency for sure. And and Dorothy Fields had written a couple of ideas. I think you can't get a man with a gun. And I can't remember the other one. There's 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 a couple of song titles that she had going in there to like pitch. Mm. And she was the lyricist, right? She was going to write the lyrics. Right. And and Irving Berlin, of course, worked by lyrics himself. and music he, by himself. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So her stepping away in this, it's like, yes, Berlin is a good choice if we can get him to do it. And so she stepped away. Interestingly, because of those song titles that she had come up with, Irving Berlin gave points in his royalty pie to... Dorothy Fields wow, in acknowledgement of those of that those seeds. That is unheard of, Jeff. Yeah. That is absolutely nobody does no. that. <laughs> um, so that kind of shows you that too is part of an, another world, right? Yeah, he was worried, right? Because Oklahoma changes the world in terms of this new idea that musical theater can take us somewhere, and that the songs aren't going to just stop and be a pretty placeholder till the next song and this and the scene is going to get us to the next song and so on it really becomes integrated mm-hmm. as richard rogers famously said about oklahoma the the orchestration sound like the costumes look mm-hmm. you know so it's this like that. that's the world where, that we're going into right. so yeah and and then after well b- before all that crisis it was after jerome kern is on board dorothy's on board rogers and hammerstein are on board Dorothy Fields went to Ethel Merman and pitched the idea in the hospital. She had just given birth to her baby, uh, her second child, Bobby, and she's had a C-section. She's in the hospital. She's like, you know, and and Dorothy Fields comes in with this great idea, you know. He's like, picture it. Yeah, picture this. You're Annie Oakley. That was it. In fact, I've read, and I think this is hysterical, the only actual idea when she started writing with her brother, Herbert Fields, when when they start writing the book, all Dorothy Fields has as an idea is Annie's entrance, which will be the shooting of an offstage gun and a bird on Dolly's hat is going to fly off. You know, she shot the bird off the hat. I mean, one of the great star entrances. One of the great entrances, and that is all that she has going in. So, um, yeah, so it's a a pretty great filling out of a cute idea, you know? 
And just the humility of this woman, right? Because she was supposed to write the lyrics and then they get Irving Berlin. And, and because it was her idea, it was important for enough for her to be willing to take a step back and be like, you know what? Yeah. You got the lyrics. That's you got right. the music. I'm going to write the book. And so she does with yes, her brother. That's right. And she knew how to, and she knew how to do that. And and her brother Herbert Fields was one of the was one of the successful uh, uh, libretto writers. Like so book writers, right. together they were able to do, you know, a great job with great characters like Annie Oakley. Let's talk about her now. All right, okay. Annie Oakley, real life person, born Phoebe Ann Moses. I'm not making this up. <laughs> Phoebe Ann Moses called Annie by her family. She had a bunch of siblings. There were six of them. And at the age of six, Annie's father, Jacob Moses, dies of pneumonia and leaves their mom, you know, by herself to raise these kids. She marries a few other times to try and, you know, better their way of life. But it ends up being Annie who provides for the family because she was just born with this incredible gift of shooting guns. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't know where it came from. She just had it. I mean, her tricks were incredible. Oh, absolutely. Like using a hand mirror and having the gun behind and shooting things with using the mirror mm-hmm. as the sight. The bullet going through a playing card that isn't this way, isn't facing you, but it's the tiny edge. <laughs> it's incredible. She could do that. Yeah. They had, okay, so Frank and Annie, when they end up together, they have a dog, and the dog would have an apple on its head, and she would shoot the apple off the dog's <laughs> head? I mean, can you imagine pointing a gun at your dog? No, I can't. No. Insane. And, and like, the dog trusts no. her. The dog's like, I, you got me, girl. You you got it, you know? <laughs> have you seen, there's also on YouTube a teeny tiny, like, no more than 30 seconds. It's probably like a 15, 17 okay. second little film of Frank throwing light bulbs into the air and her just shooting the light bulbs as he tosses them up. He, you know, he just keeps throwing them randomly and she gets them all. Bam, 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 bam. Yeah. And it's fun because you get a little look at both of them in real life. So like I said, uh, Annie was paying the bills, right? Because of all of the games she was hunting and selling, Mm -hmm. she was able to pay the $200 mortgage to keep their family from being homeless. (laughs) It's just insane at, at 15 years old. Amazing. Now, yeah. also at 15 years old, she meets Frank Butler, which sounds terrible now, and hopefully it wouldn't happen nowadays. But at 15 years old, she meets Frank Butler. And the reason is, is because there's she gets entered by the community into a, a shooting match against him. He comes in. He's like, you know, the, the traveling performer. <laughs> and she kicks his butt. He misses a shot and she wins, much to no one's surprise except for Frank Butler, who immediately falls in love with her. And here's where it really differs, because in Annie Get Your Gun, the musical, everything is about the gender politics, kind of right. the, the ego right. of these two people and whether or not they're actually going to fall in love. And in real life, these two were happily married for 50 years and uh, and Frank Butler knew that she was the star of the show. He became her manager and she was the breadwinner yeah. and everything was fine. Well, I think um, Dorothy Fields said when she when they really got into doing the research, they were two of the most boring people she had ever <laughs> read about in right. exactly the re- in exactly the way you're talking about. Yes. They were they were in love. They were happily married. She was the she was the obvious like selling point in an act, uh, you know, in the kind of mm-hmm. entertainment that was like 
uh, popular in the day, and he saw the wisdom of it. I mean, there wasn't really a uh, that 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 ego thing wasn't really there. Well, now I'm realizing. You know, we started talking about your record collection, and I think I found the connection between "I Do, I Do" and "Annie Get Your Gun." "I Do, I Do" is the story, uh, like the real story, of Frank Butler and Annie Oakley, because they're just like a a married couple who live and yeah. enjoy each other. You know, that's right. That's true. That's exactly right. <laughs> In fact, they they lived together fifty years and only die a couple weeks apart. It was the real. It it was the real deal. All right. Well, let's go ahead and talk through the show because as we do it, we'll be able to discuss more of these fascinating characters, many of whom were real people. Uh, heads up, Annie, get your gun is one of the few musicals in theater history that has indigenous representation. So we will be talking about Native Americans. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why the show probably has been rewritten as many times as it has is because we keep learning about how that representation deserves to be seen on stage. So for that very reason, we'll be discussing the 1999 revival script because it seems to be the most politically correct. The show begins, like you said, with there's no business like show business. Now, originally, the show began with this song called Colonel Buffalo Bill, and it has some problematic lyrics, but basically it has kind of a, a Wells Fargo wagon feel to it. And I mean, I it's cute. I don't miss it. But it's, it's, cute. Cute. it's the show. It's the show coming to town. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And when they did this revival in 1999, they brought on book writer Peter Stone to relook at the script. And our listeners mm-hmm. will remember Peter Stone from the Will Rogers Follies and Titanic. And he uses one of his favorite devices in this new script, which is a show within a show. So during this big opening number of There's No Business Like Show Business, he is saying, all right, here we are, this troop of players. We are going to be presenting our version of the romance of Frank Butler and Annie Oakley. Right off the bat, they're saying this is our version of it. And I also understand why they cut Colonel Buffalo Bill, because in the 21st century, I came to the theater to watch Annie Get Your Gun, and here, there's no business like show business, right? I mean, that's why we did it. <laughs> well, I know, and that's that's funny, because you think of 1946, there's no business like show business isn't, there's no business like show business yet. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't well, open a show, and you're like... You know what the hit's going to be? Is this what, you know, what's going to become an actual anthem for our business is nestled somewhere in this show. About Amen. four numbers in. I mean, it's not buried deeply. And Annie doesn't really sing it. Right, right. It, it's just the it's guys. the guys. I mean, she does a great reprise, which mm. I love hers. It was like, instead of even in a turkey that you know will fold, you may be stranded out in the cold. Still, you wouldn't trade it for a sack of gold. Her variation is... How I wish the folks at home could only see what's come to this girl, how proud they'd be getting paid for doing what comes naturally. Aww. I love that. So that's, that's when, I, so when I do, um, obviously, I, I have an Ethel Merman show and I close with that. And that's the little, that's the version of it. Because I, I love that. Ugh. I wish the folks at home could see what, what, what's come to me by just doing what comes naturally. Right. You know? Oh, so, that's so beautiful. I love it so much. Better yeah. than a turkey will fold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need to discuss the turkeys. That's right, our turkeys. We'll, we accept them, but we don't need to explore them, really. <laughs> also, I do want to take a moment to congratulate you on your Ethel Merman show. I mean, what a career you've made of celebrating this woman Thank and you. this time period. Thank you. Really, it's beautiful. 
Okay, other characters that we yeah. meet in this opening number, we got uh, Frank Butler, of course, the sharpshooter. We got Dolly Tate, who you played. Hello. Mm. Um, also, the villain of the piece. I mean, she is. Right. <laughs> she's Frank Butler's assistant, but also kind of wants to wrangle him. She has a sister by the name of Winnie. Right. And uh, I was very protective of her because she has fallen in love with someone by the name of Tommy Keeler. Yes, I think you're right. I was going to say Gilas, but that's that's music <laughs> that's man. More music man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Tommy Keeler, and Tommy happens to be part Native American. So Dolly is uh, also this kind of racist bigot that's also played for laughs. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, there you have it. Next up is Chief Sitting Bull, and I want to take some time and talk about Chief Sitting Bull because what an incredible leader, real-life human being, uh, who was a, a leader of the Lakota tribe and did spend some time, like this musical says, in the Colonel Buffalo Bill show. He toured with them, not for as long as maybe the musical might make us think, but he was with the show during which he famously met Annie Oakley. The story goes that he saw her shoot, do her act, and then wrote her a letter mm. asking to meet her and also giving her $65 if, you know, to pay her for her time, which is crazy when we think about it because $65 back then was probably like a 1000 Anyway, Annie Oakley receives this very generous offer and she immediately refuses him and says, absolutely not, I'm not taking your money, but I would love to meet you. And they two, the two meet and they hit it off. I mean, <laughs> it's it's so sweet. He unofficially adopts her and calls yeah. her little sure shot. Uh, <laughs> and they stay close, you know, for the rest of their lives. It's, it's really, really a, a sweet story that is reflected in the musical. Now, a little bit more about Chief Sitting Bull. He came to prominence because of the battle for the Little Bighorn, which was a mm -hmm. very famous battle for the Lakota people. And he, as, and please forgive the white man language, he, as their medicine man, had a vision in which he saw their people celebrating a huge victory. And, of course, they did. You know, in, in addition to the errors made by General Custer on the other side, many people believe it is because of this vision, the way that he was able to buoy up his people and inspire them that led to this amazing victory. Now, I also want to touch on the way that he passed away because, oh my goodness, can this please be turned into a musical? People need to hear this story. Basically, what happened was the U.S. government went against a treaty. Surprise, surprise. They split the reservation into five different piece, parcels of land with the intention of assimilation. They wanted to, they wanted them to start farming like white people. So they send people there to teach them. However, these areas of land were incredibly arid and not great for farming, not to mention it was a particularly hot year. And so what the tribe ended up doing was turning to dance. They started doing what was called the ghost dance. And, and the intention of this dance was to end colonialization, to get the gods or the spirits to stop the U.S. government from continuing their uh, colonialization. This freaked out the U.S. government. They sent troops. Long story short, a gun goes off and Chief Sitting Bull is shot. Shame. 
Shame I'm, on us. I mean, can you believe that story? It's it's wow. insane. Uh, I would love to see yeah. that brought to life on stage because, wow, what a story that we need to be reminded of. Yeah, that we can tackle things like that now. Oh, uh, we absolutely you know? can. That's That's tragic. That's horrible. And I do think that in this piece... Chief Sitting Bull is a charismatic person mm-hmm. with a lot of wit, and it then falls upon us as creatives to make sure that it is cast correctly. Yeah, authentically, we, we talk a lot about diversity in casting, and specifically with Indigenous Native Americans. Man, there's just yeah. so little representation in the musical theater canon. Uh, they, they deserve to yeah. be represented correctly. And I believe the original production... And the revival had Harry Belliver, who it, who was an Indian. I'm not sure which which tribe he was. So they were only mm. able to get that much right then, right? You know, totally. But we've learned as we go. That's like okay. And now I don't think. Well, certainly the production I had did not have work an authentic chief. Yeah, they did bowl. not have an. They did not have an authentic sitting bowl. Yeah. But and then so was I'm an Indian too. Just cut. Yeah. Yeah, I so think I remember that. Okay, I'm an Indian too is a a, a song that was written, mm-hmm. but like when you look at it, those lyrics just can't be rescued, and so they cut that, but maintained the really beautiful mm-hmm. relationship between Annie Oakley and Sitting Bull, and so I feel like there's nothing lost. Right. Right. I also want to give a shout out to a theater company in Los Angeles called Native Voices. I've been there a couple times. They perform in the Gene Autry Museum, which is like right across the the way from the L.A. Zoo. And a a great theater company dedicated to telling the stories of indigenous Native Americans using performers who also share that lineage. So you, you sit down, you open your program in every bio is the the tribe from which that performer stems and sometimes these performers have been on Broadway mm-hmm. sometimes they're just local community members but they are all coming together to tell the stories of these underrepresented people they create their own yeah scripts. yeah well, I mean, I these mean are sometimes shows. right sometimes you'll see measure for measure but it's set on an indian reservation mm-hmm. or uh whatever it is it's always been a really interesting original experience a little rough around the edges sometimes uh Mm -hmm. but that's also what makes it so original and feel so unique so grateful and i think one of the big takeaways that i've always come away from when when seeing their their stuff is that you can find people to cast you know there are always going to be people who want to share their lineage their history with these characters Yes, and then they those parts should be their parts. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about revisions that address those problems and tries to fix them. You know, which is uh, is what we can ask for. Oh, absolutely. And I always quote this on the podcast from Brene Brown. It's not about being right; it's about getting it right. That's absolutely mm-hmm. right. Hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and sometimes mm-hmm, it takes a while, mm-hmm. especially for us privileged white folk. And that's, that's just right. the truth. Absolutely. Okay, so after this opening number, we've met everybody. Now it's time to meet Annie. And, of course, the big star entrance, she comes out. She shoots the bird off of Dolly's hat. And she's like, why do you have a bird on your hat? And she's like, it's fashionable. I sewed it up there. And she's like, well, you're going to have to keep sewing it up there because people like me are going to keep shooting it off. It's a fantastic moment. Now, she's there to sell her game to uh, the owner of the hotel, Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson. Uh-huh. 
And he agrees and he says, and it says, looks great. I'll buy yeah. 24. And she's like, oh, fantastic. And then turns to her her family and says, who do we know who can count to 24? <laughs> <laughs> and the great selling point on this game is they've been shot clean through the head. Yes, just the so one the shot. Buckskin, all the meat is good. That's all the meat is good. She gets them mm-hmm. in the head. And that's exactly. that's why he like want, that's why he is like, I'll take them. I'll take them all. Yeah. And then who can right. count to 24? <laughs> <laughs> it's so fantastic. Now she is there with her three younger siblings who she's always looking after. And in this moment, they take the opportunity to celebrate the great tradition they have in their family of doing what comes naturally. I mean, one <laughs> of the great songs, every verse is just chock full of these super clever Irving Berlin lyrics. Yes. Uh, I'm so impressed because we often think of Cole Porter as the king of the witty lyric, right? Brush up your Shakespeare and kiss me, Kate, for example. And yet here in Annie Get Your Gun, Irving Berlin has doing what comes naturally. Can't get a man with a gun. Anything you can do. Show No business like show business in many ways. He out Cole Porter Cole Porter. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. So true. It's a fantastic score. He had nothing to worry about. Now, after doing what comes naturally... Mr. Wilson realizes that the person to compete against big shot Frank Butler is, in fact, this person standing in front of him, Annie Oakley. And so he gets her into this competition. The minute that she sees Frank Butler, however, she... 100% fallen in love with him. Right. Yeah. He is agrees to, you know, beat her because, of course, a woman's not going to beat him. But uh, as it happened in real life, she did. He misses a shot and uh, she wins. I want to say one thing about the production. It's a very, very famous thing. Yes, please. Uh, when Ethel Merman first sees Ray Middleton... Right. It's uh, a very, you'll find this referenced a lot of places. It was called the goon look. And she sees him and just drops her jaw as wide as it can go and sort of let her whole body go. And um, it got a huge, huge, huge response. And she would hold it for a really long time and it would just, the waves of laughter would just keep happening. Yeah. I love, I love when you read stuff like that because you're like, you know, it's like, oh, that's comic brilliance. It's like it actually was comic brilliance. Yeah, so it, the goon look, you'll find it in Josh Logan's book. And um, it's referenced quite a bit. And it's kind the of like, goon look. yeah, that's a thing. The goon look. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. Without the horn. Yeah. Right. So, But wow. I stopped you. That was like a production thing, no. not a story thing. No, I love that. So when Frank and Annie have this opportunity to connect, Mm -hmm. uh, Frank begins to tell her about the kind of woman that he would love to marry. And she is all pink and roses and gardenias in her hair and perfume water, everything that Annie Oakley isn't. And it kind of breaks her heart because she's madly in love with him and realizes that she's not his type, which leads her to sing You Can't Get a Man with a Gun. Which is a great song. I mean, great great song. Irving Berlin, once again, just hitting them out of the ballpark. Has there ever been a better lyric than a man may be hot, but he's not when he's shot? <laughs> it's it's fantastic. All three or four. I just sang this recently on a Broadway program. You can't shoot a male in the tail like a quail. I can't remember the... Uh, there, so there's great. a third one, but they're all fantastic. Right. They're really... And 
it's fun when you perform it now. This was a show, Bravo Broadway, that that I do with my friend Scott Coulter, and it had yes. two other women, Jessica Hendy and Kelly Rapke. <gasps> And they really corner that market. Yeah, she's great. They corner the market kind of on that wicked, defying gravity kind of singing that is singing I am not capable of. I would never. No, I just wouldn't be able to do it. It wouldn't be possible. And so what I had to contribute was kind of this golden age sound. And it's fun to kind of like wind it, you know, kind of bring it back down to like music from the 40s and have people just enjoying the sound of, oh, my mother was frightened by a shotgun, they say. Mm. You know, just that kind of piercing what it was that <laughs> Ethel Merman had. And listen to them really laugh at those lyrics for for just how clever they are, yes. you know. And it's not about, um, it, it really has no pyrotechnics. It, it doesn't go higher than, it, it's not difficult to sing. Yeah, no gymnastics. It's difficult to remember. Oh, that's but a not good point. difficult to sing, right. you know. Right. So they're a blast. I find people really enjoy them because most of what we're here, you know, most most of what's popular now or what opens now, are not things that have an A A B A form for the song. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, they do have a form. I'm not, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong. No, with it. no, no, no. Um, but they are not this kind of song. Yeah, it's you know. Not... And I think in my being at the opera festival twice, once with Annie, get your gun. And 2019 was Showboat. Mm. I think what's important among the two kinds of singers, musical theater singers, especially Golden Age stuff and opera, is we have to remember to speak of them as an aesthetic difference, not a moral difference. Yes. Uh, An operatic soprano is not morally superior to a belter. Uh, right. And being able to do high notes is not morally superior to excelling at low notes. Hallelujah. That's my two cents for the day. Yes. That's the main difference. Otherwise, you start getting into like, no, and you start forming this sort of political bond against the two right. where they don't meet. I don't really think opera and musical theater are related, but I think they live on the same street and we need to keep their property values up so both are valuable and supported. That's kind of... Oh, um, my gosh. Clea for president. That's something I've learned to address. This is great. <laughs> that's what I've learned to address as a belter and not get defensive yeah. when challenged about this. Because I, I had a high school teacher who wouldn't let me pay, play MAME unless oh. my parents agreed to have me take voice lessons because uh, he said... She will not have a voice when she's 40 if oh, she yeah. keeps she's singing She's going to hurt that. herself. Yeah. And so it came from a place of love. Mm-hmm. But no, there's a proper way to do to do this stuff. You know Exactly. Now, Annie joins Colonel Buffalo Bill's show. Yeah. All of the men encourage her to do so, including Frank Butler, much to, I guess, everybody's surprise and much to her great excitement. So she joins. She takes the kids along. And uh, speaking of belting, one of my favorite songs coming up, Moonshine Lullaby. It's beautiful. Just lovely. And you know, this song never got any airplay at the time. It was not a hit from the show because it talked. It was talking about alcohol and moonshine was was illicit alcohol. Of course. And oh. so that kept it oh off the gosh, radio. Oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought of this. Right. We look at something like that now and we're like, uh, you're freaking kidding yeah, me, child's right? Played. Like, who, who cares? No, every, you know, everything else was a hit. Well, one of the other reasons I'm kind of obsessed with the song is because it is a lullaby. But when you listen to Ethel Merman sing it, uh, it, it nobody's falling asleep. Like, who are we kidding? <laughs> well, that's another thing I want to point out to you 
is if you compare, depends on which recording you grew up with, if you listen to the 1946 recording, none of what's present on the 1966 recording is there. In other words, it's still clarion, but she hasn't, it hasn't become a tick yet. So it might be, uh, for example, they say that falling in love is wonderful. She goes to the end, mm. but in the 1966, it'll be, they say that falling in love is wonderful. You know, oh it has my that, gosh, right. <gasps> right? This is fantastic. It's like over, it's like the, it's like the vocal equivalent of a bodybuilder. It's just <laughs> been being built and built. So it's a little bit grotesque it's at the by list. 66. <laughs> but, it, but, uh, and so I always advocate for the 46 because those things that you think are there are not there so mm. so give give that a spin if you oh, will i totally but will. yes now you just sang the refrain of the next gorgeous song that's coming up they say it's wonderful oh. i mean a beautiful beautiful mm-hmm. song and it all comes about because annie is trying to play frank's game she is trying to convince him that she is the type of girl that he says he likes yeah, doesn't she put on toilet water and like gets her fingernails done or something? <laughs> I can't remember what the things are that she tries to like. Cleans those you nails. You know what will really get this guy? Cologne. Toilet water. Toilet water. <laughs> toilet water will do it. <laughs> Let's just take a bath in that toilet water and call it a day. What's wonderful about Annie, though, is that even though she tries these certain things, she just can't help but be herself. Right, exactly. She is just unapologetically Annie. And I think... It is what makes everybody fall in love with her. She can't help it. Yeah. Now, in addition to this romance that's kind of budding and blooming, we have the romance between Tommy and Winnie that is full steam ahead, uh, pardon the pun, because their first song together is a song called I'll Share It All With You that's on a train. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go quickly through their story because to be perfectly honest, I could take it or leave it. But in the second act, they do have this adorable (laughs) song called uh, Who Do You Love? I Hope, which is so, so sweet. It's, you know, your typical young ingenue romance, except for the fact that underneath it all is this interesting backstory of race relations. Mm. Now, Frank... Like we said, Annie is irresistible, and he finally has a moment to collect himself and realize, oh, I may be falling for this woman. And he sings, My Defenses Are Down. Great song. Shout out to John McDaniel, fantastic music director who came up with this really jazzy, almost Bob Fosse-like dance arrangement for this song. I always really loved performing it uh, in my chaps. But this moment of self-realization is interrupted by his ego. Why? Because... Colonel Buffalo Bill's show is in financial trouble. And so who's going to save it? Not Frank Butler, but Annie Oakley, which therefore makes him... Man. (laughs) (laughs) Just man. That's what we do in musical theater. We simplify. Bring it down. He's very man. He's very man. And so he leaves. He leaves the Colonel Buffalo Bills show for Pawnee Bills show, who is the big competitor. And that's how the first act ends is Annie's heart broken. And she sings a a sad reprise of You Can't Get a Man with a Gun. Now it's intermission. And we are going to play a game that I have created especially for you, Miss Clea Blackhurst. It is called Merman or Mormon. Now (laughs) you are raised in the Salt Lake Valley. And you are a merman specialist. So I thought yes. it would be fun if I read a series of quotes and then you tell me if the quote is from Ethel Merman <laughs> or from the Book of Mormon. 
Oh, wow. Book, not musical. Oh, wow. Okay, let me see how I You're do You're going to be great. Yeah. It's like right. okay, riding good. a bicycle. Right. Okay, here we go. And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn <laughs> that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Well, I'm going to have to go with the Book Book of Mormon. Ding, 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 ding. Amazing. How did you know that? <laughs> That's incredible. Okay, next one. Here we go. I don't like to read. The only things I read are gossip columns. If someone gives me a book, it had better have a lot of pictures. Oh, that's that's Ethel Merman. Oh, I can't believe this. Maybe this is easier than I thought. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I. You know, when I read that in her, that's that's from her autobiography, Merman. Her first autobiography was called "Who Could Ask for Anything More," and then apparently somebody did because about twenty years later she wrote. Merman. Um, but when I read that, it's in the beginning. It's in the early pages. And I, I had to put the book down. I was so disappointed in her. Oh, I just thought I was so sad that she wasn't a reader. I was like, okay. Of course. Well, so it was, it's interesting what breaks a little historian's heart, you know, in seventh grade. <laughs> no. I'm like, no, but she, she doesn't I mean, read. <laughs> but also that tracks, right? I mean, she didn't have time for that. She's doing totally. shorthand. No question. She did not have time for that. Okay, next one. Here we go. (laughs) Okay. Now ye may suppose that this is foolishness in me, but behold, I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass, and small means in many instances doth confound the wise. Wow. I mean, she's not really thinking outside the um, box, and so I'm going to let... That be Moroni or Nephi or somebody. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think. Okay. Ding, ding, All ding! Right. You're right. Oh my gosh, you are so good at this game. I think we're definitely okay. in like an Alma okay. or Mosiah right. type situation here. All right, next one. Thanks. Legend has it that when God created me, He gave me a big, distinctive voice, a lot of boldness, and no heart. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Why would she say that? Yeah, I'm gonna make that from the first autobiography. Who could ask for anything more, Ethel Merman? Wow. Okay. Not just Ethel, but Uh, you can tell me the book. I think that's maybe her saying, well, legend has it. I think probably the next paragraph goes on to say, but I got a big heart. I've loved all kinds of goofy men, you know. Okay. Next one. Behold, I speak with boldness, having authority from God, and I fear not what man can do, for perfect love casteth out all fear. Oh my gosh, this is just way too easy. <laughs> uh, it's the opening with behold. Yeah, I think I'm you're right. Sure, I think it's the behold. I'm That's pretty the sure thing. she never started a sentence with that. <laughs> behold. Unless it's a uh, blow Gabriel. I'm Ethel right? Like, behold Gabriel. Yes. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right, last one. Here we go. At a flea market, I always head to the junk jewelry table first. (laughs) I mean, that's my favorite quote of all time, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's a good one. And I think it happens because she was the victim of a cat burglar (gasps) who came in when she was at the theater one night and stole all of her good jewelry. And so I think this quote comes from later in her life when she's like, so she didn't replace any of it. Yeah, she's like, she just goes for the junk jewelry. Right. Mm -mm, No, no, it it broke her heart. There was some good stuff in that collection. And so she just she just went with costume jewelry from then on. So I think that's where that comes from. That's what theater's for, right? Who cares? Nobody's going to look close enough anyway. (laughs) It's going to read to the back of the house. Well, congratulations. Hey, that's really my pleasure. I mean, truly, you just absolutely slayed (laughs) Merman or Mormon. Is it it a little bit sad that I got kind of nervous (laughs) at 
at the beginning at the just beginning of the game because I was like, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't trip me up. But yeah. I'm glad you chose beholds. It was okay. the beholds. They're the tell. One hundred percent. All right, back to the show. Act two begins with the European tour in which Annie visits every country in Europe and is met enthusiastically by their royals with applause and medals. Yeah, lots and lots of medals that have... Jewel encrusted. Right, that have the jewels in them. It's a big, big success. After this tour, they get on the ship to go back to America and the ship is called uh, the Titanic. No, I'm just kidding. The Titanic isn't in this one. But Pawnee Bill is on the same ship. Yeah. His show. Real And that means Frank Butler. Yeah. So lo and behold. Oh, there's behold. <laughs> <laughs> lo and behold. Annie sees Frank and all of those feelings come back. And so she sings, I Got Lost in His Arms. That is a perfect, gorgeous ballad. It is a perfect gorgeous. song. I mean the fact that it goes da 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 da. I mean it just the way that it builds. No, it's it's a wonderful song. It's textbook songwriting. Period. Now there is going to be this secret meeting on the ship between Buffalo Bill and Pawnee Bill, and Buffalo Bill still having money problems even after that super successful European tour, and he hears that Pawnee Bill wants to combine like join, forces. join yeah. exactly join forces and uh that sounds like you know answer to prayers because they're still having all of these financial problems what is interesting though is that Pawnee Bill is also having money problems <laughs> and Buffalo Bill doesn't know it so they come together hoping that the other person will like rescue them and it turns out nobody has any money which is there anything more show business than than this little plot line who saves the day is once again Annie Oakley because she has an entire chest full of medals and jewels. And oh, she is yeah. like, all right, well, I will just use all of these jewels to save the show. And there's a big ballroom sequence in which she, she sings the another great hit. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. Wonderful, wonderful song that has a great arrangement in this revival. Has yeah. a hoedown. I mean, I'm a Utah farm boy. I love a good hoedown <laughs> in a musical, and this one has got it. Frank hears about Annie saving the show, is super grateful, and actually professes his love. She does as well. It's all going to go swell, and they're going to have an old-fashioned wedding. What a great song. Now, was this one wasn't necessarily written for Annie Get Your Gun, right? Uh, it, was well, it written before? or? Well, no. What happens is Call Me Madam has a wonderful double song where Ethel Merman <clears throat> and the young press attaché in that do you're just in love which is you, you don't need you don't need analyzing analyze right, right, right. and so when merman had she had she had such a stop the show moment with you're just in love that when they did this 1966 revival ethel said to irving berlin can you write another double oh, song okay. and so he writes old fashioned wedding well, i mean i i I'm on a wedding in a big church with so i mean i can't picture the show without it no me neither and I will also say that in a very thrilling way, old-fashioned wedding, so it's like, uh, uh, we'll have an old-fashioned wedding, is is the Frank, the mm-hmm. slower one, and then we want a wedding in a big church, and then call me madam, I hear singing and there's no one there against, you don't need analyzing, right? Those two songs go together, those two songs to go together, 
they also all four go together. Oh, no and way. yes, and if and I've done it uh, a number of times. It's almost like Mozart. I swear oh, to you. Oh like my he gosh! Put, he put a note. He did patterns. All four patterns will go together, and they're thrilling. And it's wow. so fun to hear him that way. But the double songs on their own are just so much fun and old fashioned wedding. So so obviously this 1999 revival would say, you know what? Over the two versions, you got it. This keep is it. one that we definitely have to take and put into anything down the line because it's such it's such an adorable crowd pleaser. I completely agree. So. Now, after old fashioned wedding, it seems like everything's going to be fine, but then somebody's feelings get hurt. I wonder who. <laughs> Poor Frank. I, 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 it's once again this battle of the egos where uh, Annie starts, you know, tooting yeah. her own horn and then he wants to toot his and there's too much tooting and not enough rooting. So they break it off and decide that they, instead they're going to have a shooting match because Annie got lucky right. and Frank wants right. to prove that he's the best once and for all. Colonel Buffalo Bill gets this idea that he is going to mess with Annie's gun because everybody yeah. is sick of this <laughs> at this point. That's right. That's and right. if Annie loses, then Frank stays with the show and and they want this merger to go through. They want Comcast, NBC, Universal to all be a happy family. <laughs> so they are going to make Annie lose to keep the family together. The day of the shooting match comes, and right before they start, they have time for one more 11 o'clock number. We know it. We love it. It's called Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. They're trying to one-up each other. The crowd's loving it. And then they start the shooting match. Annie misses her first shot, which everyone is so surprised by. Frank gets his. And then she thinks, oh, maybe there's something wrong with this gun. Yeah. That's when Chief Sitting Bull takes her aside and says, you know how you've always said... You can't get a man with a gun? And she says, yes. And he says, well, you can get a man with this gun. And she realizes, <laughs> oh, okay. If I lose this match, I win Frank. I win because I decide I win. Frank kind of gets wind of this. He doesn't want to win because someone lets him win. And so when it comes time for his shot, he misses his shot on purpose. And now they're both missing their shots. Cute. Realizing that what they actually want is each other, not the match. So it's a tie. And these two are now equals. And that's how it ends? Yep. Well, I mean, yeah, they... They are equals. It's a tie. I love it. Okay, it's, that's it's really cute. That's yeah, that's cute. That's totally fine. It's a I great mean, update. That's of course in the original versions, she lets him win, mm-hmm. and they live happily ever after. So very popular. A revisal in the 40s. of male female relationships is absolutely in order, and that's absolutely. sweet. And then yeah. they live happily ever after and become and the most boring it. people in the world. <laughs> Well, not before singing a beautiful reprise of They Say It's Wonderful. (laughs) And uh, we all live happily ever after. It's a great show. Once again, I don't know why I didn't like it because now when I look back at at this work and all of the choices that they made, I I totally see why they made all of them and I love them for it. That. I mean, and that often happens, doesn't it? We do something and we're like, oh, but I love it. This is my favorite part uh, in something that we thought was absolutely stupid. I mean, maybe not stupid, maybe that's strong words, but when we get inside of them and we get to live inside of them, a lot of shows that have like, quote unquote, made it over the years, we find something to love about it and we get kind of proprietary over it. 
Well, and it's one of the reasons why I do this on the show. Sometimes it's it's difficult to go through all of the, the plot of these shows, but I always find that when I do, I am left with this feeling of, oh, wow, I guess I love this show. It, it, it's really beautiful. Yeah, that's fantastic. That Actually, that's that speaks to you. That oh. speaks to you and your, uh, like an open heart, right? Because, uh, first of all, you you push yourself through the experience. And <laughs> not everybody would t- choose to go through an experience and come out changed on the other side. Oh, uh, and I think you. you should take credit for that. Oh, thank you. That that means a lot to me. And I, I hope that it means something for other people when they listen to these episodes, because if we can catch the inspiration of what these people were doing, I mean, I think it's worth it. Uh, this is our history. This is our legacy. And now we can make it even be- more beautiful. That's right. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast. We also have a T Public store where you can buy merchandise like the one I'm wearing now, the celebrating the show. Don't forget to subscribe to Patreon exclamation point. You guys, we're gonna have such amazing content this year, including a Sondheim tribute that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Star Starring original cast members of Merrily We Roll Along. What? It's going to be amazing. More than anything, I just love to connect. And uh, speaking of connection, Clea, how do we connect with you? Oh, well, I have uh, a a website, which um, is... uh, My friend Jim Caruso told me a website is now what a phone number used to be when we started (laughs) our show. So uh, it's Clea Blackhurst dot com k-l-e-a-b-l-a-c-k-h-u-r-s-t dot com and i do have instagram and facebook and i'm challenged with those but i have somebody helping me now so hopefully and uh, i hope to have a very busy touring schedule this year so you can always check out the upcoming performances on the website and i'd love to see anybody there and uh, i'd love to see anybody who listened to this come over and tell me Oh, that that's that's how we're connected. That would make me very happy. Oh, well, for everybody who's listening, I have been on the receiving end of the glorious talent that is Clea Blacker. So if you have an opportunity <laughs> to see her, uh, please, please take advantage. Clea, thank you. Thank you so much for going over this with me. It's been a, a true so joy. And my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. And it's been an absolute pleasure. And to everybody out there. Just remember, there's no business like show business. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.